Hi, everyone. You're listening to Bushwick Junction on Radio Free Brooklyn. This is a show about life's inflection points, hosted by me, Asha Saluja. It's about the crossroads in our lives, which paths we choose when we reach them, and where those choices lead us or don't. We'll talk about the decisions we agonized over and the decisions we didn't even realize we were making until years after we made them. We'll talk about how we decide things, how we weigh our options, or how we tap into our intuitions. And we'll talk about the degree to which our choices matter. Do we have any control over the things that alter our fate, or do we end up in the same place no matter which roads we take? On each show, I have a guest tell me about all the big decisions they've ever made in order. We'll start at birth, fast forward to their first big decision, and map out the road their life has taken as a series of these inflection points or junctions. So with that, I will introduce today's very special guest. I know this person because she's from Miami like me. Um, Pamela Villacundu is a Latina criminal justice reform advocate living like me in New York. Following, so like Pam became on my radar because she made a big career change. And that's always really exciting to me as a bad decision maker. Um, after three years in finance, Pam w- left. Do you like Pamela or Pam? Pam. Pam. <laughs> Pam left to work towards achieving a fairer criminal justice system. She runs a youth program at Bronx Connect, which aims to disrupt the school to prison pipeline. Incredible work. Um, what else? Pam spent a year organizing around two successful criminal justice campaigns, the Close Rikers campaign big New York moment that Pam was like a big part of and the speedy trial campaign at the state level. Uh, She also is like a low key Instagram celebrity. I found out today you have like several thousand followers on all the women go find her there. Uh, And she's appeared on lots of podcasts that are more important than mine. She's like, she's like a celebrity. She, I put on my Instagram today. Pam's a Miami celebrity, especially (laughs) Miami's proud to have produced you. I bet. Uh, what else in the way of introduction? Did I cover everything? Yes. And this is an awesome podcast. So thank you. <laughs> uh, we met in like high school debate. Is that right? We were sort of like, we were like both smart girls doing smart girl things. And in we Miami. crossed paths that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. The first question on this show will take place in Miami, as I mentioned. Tell me about the circumstances into which you were born. So I was born in the United States, but my family is Mexican. And so I actually, I was born in Boston, but then I quickly moved to Mexico. So the first nine years of my life were actually spent in Mexico City. I did not know that. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely um, kind of confusing because I feel that Mexico is such a huge part of my identity as is Miami, right, in the U.S. And so I, yeah, the first nine years of my life were spent in Mexico City around my family and my grandparents and into what was a very uh, nice, privileged, middle-class situation. And my dad had a great opportunity to bring his family to Miami, Florida when I was around nine years old. And I was really upset about it. But ultimately, I started to love Miami. And um, I don't know, actually... I don't know if I loved Miami for a while, but now that I'm not there and I think about how sunny it is, 
considering we're in New York City where it was just like snowing a month ago and was like 55 degrees a couple of days ago, I definitely miss Miami. And so, yeah, I was kind of born into this very complicated situation where, you know, I'm Mexican, I'm a, I'm a Miamian, and then I, I also spent time in Chicago in college, which we'll get to, but yeah. yeah. Born into like four different kinds of identity, <laughs> like yeah. right off the bat. You have a, a kind of big family, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm the oldest of four girls. And so- What fun. Yeah, it's really, I I love it. I'm the oldest and the next sister was- uh, was not born until I was about four or five. And so I was almost like, a. sometimes I think I liken myself to an only child because I had like five years just by myself mm. before the next one was born. Uh, but it's been really, really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's fast forward to your first big decision. You're this young person in Miami with all these different places kind of in your heart already. And what makes you decide to move away? I was pretty much intent on leaving Miami, I think. Why? Miami is great. There's a lot of great people uh-huh. in Miami, but I think that um, the overwhelming sentiment or kind of like feeling you get in many parts of Miami is it's a little bit superficial, a little bit materialistic. There's the beach, you know, there's, you know, it's almost like another LA in the yeah. sense that people are always just like, trying to look hot and beautiful, going out to clubs, like just living the like cool life. And I never felt like I identified with that. I always wanted, I sought to find something that was more uh, intellectual. I fell in love with the University of Chicago when my college counselor brought it up. And it was a school that wasn't even on my map of consideration. But she said, I think this would be the perfect place for you. So I started researching, looking into it, and I completely just fell head over heels with the, the the idea of attending the University of Chicago. Wow. Guidance counselor in there, in there with an <laughs> early junction. That's awesome. Um, I, I agree about Miami, of course, but I think the thing that leaving it, um, I didn't even notice until like set being several years out, like the superficial part you feel while you're in it you're like oh everyone cares about just like looking cool and pretty here but the thing that was super pervasive that I didn't notice until later is like your sense of time like I don't think people think about next year in Miami <laughs> I I strongly believe that like in Miami the way the the like farthest your brain can go is like next weekend you're just like okay what's gonna happen tonight what's gonna happen tomorrow what's what's gonna happen this week you can't even like, I think it's the lack of seasons. Like you can't even imagine like six months from now. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, I mean, as soon as I got to college and I was like, oh, like people are thinking about what they want to be when they grow up. Like I used to think about that, but most of my friends didn't used to think about that that much. Um, anyway, so your first big decision was guided a little bit by your college counselor. Was it hard? Were you struggling between a few different things? I was. So I had gotten into University of Miami, which a lot of smart Miami kids have the privilege of getting in with scholarship. Uh, And so I got in and my parents were, I mean, in their mind, it was like, you know, why would you ever indebt yourself with a combination of like having us help you pay for really expensive college education when you have a scholarship? 
And so I, I definitely took that to heart and I even put down a deposit and I was just going to go to the University of Miami. But I think it was, it was like the last day that I could change my mind, that I could say to University of Chicago, actually, I want to go mm-hmm. there. And I remember I went to school. My dad would drive me to school, which is really cool. And I, we were driving to school and I was wearing shades. I was wearing sunglasses because I was crying like Aww. nonstop all day. I just cried. And by the end of the day, my dad looked at me and he said, you really want to go? You should go. Yeah. Wow. And I was like, yes, that's it. Like, I just I think I just needed to know that uh, my family supported me because my family is a really important part of my life, especially when I was so young and I knew that financially I was dependent on, uh, you know, on their help which again is something I'm really grateful for. And so I made that decision and it was the best decision I think I've ever made. Yeah. You know, I have a really similar story, like a same thing, like it was UM versus a couple of other schools. And it was, yeah, it's like UM is such a great option and it's so familiar too. It's like staying in a life that feels comfortable to you versus going out and experiencing some total new life money aside that's like a scary thing to decide to do Mm -hmm. so you end up in chicago and how does it go what happens so the first year was actually pretty difficult i found myself at this so the dorm that i got uh put into which i actually selected it was called the Shoreland, which is not around anymore because it's basically like a decrepit, borderline decrepit hotel, which was gorgeous probably back when it was first built, you know, in the early 1900s. But it was, it was, I mean, my mom dropped me off and she was like, Pam, I cannot believe that I'm going to let you live here. Like you would slap the couches and like all this dust Ew. from like decades would just like fill the air. And it was also um, pretty far from campus. So it was a 30 minute walk. Um, which in Chicago winters, you know, 30 minutes doesn't sound bad, but Chicago can get pretty cold. And so you you would have to take the bus into class. So I can't remember the number of times I was late for my, like, for my 8.30 a.m., you know, humanities course my first year. And I felt very, like, I felt like I decided to go to the University of Chicago because I was a little bit dorky for Miami. But then I got to the University of Chicago and I wasn't dorky, like, for the University of Chicago, right? That is right? so <laughs> relatable. You're like, actually, I'm way cooler than all of you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. So similar. Such a similar experience. So d- did you feel like you didn't fit in? Was it like hard in that way? It was hard. I don't know if it was, I felt that I didn't fit in. I definitely felt like everybody was smarter than me. I felt like everybody had uh, actually studied and paid attention in high school, hmm. where like, I feel like I just kind of got by on the whims of my like yeah. you know not that i'm super smart but you know i'm smart enough to show so that, up like and, yeah yeah i got it done and then i got there and i was like holy shit these people i, I mean they're taking this these like advanced level math courses and science courses and i was nowhere near that level of uh ed- like i guess knowledge and so that was really hard but i definitely related to them in some ways right like i I think everybody there, there's this really cool uh, culture where people just care about learning and not necessarily where like the process and the journey is the thing that matters. Like cultural and uh, sorry, the um, intellectual pursuit is kind of like an end in and of itself. People aren't trying to like get technical skills to then go on and, you know, do crazy things. And one of the cool things about it is that obviously a lot of people from very privileged backgrounds were there, but there are also tons of people that came from all walks of life. So there are people that didn't come from many means growing up. There are people from all parts of the country 
that didn't have access to the same kind of uh, resources than many others. And that was cool. Like they still cared to such a high degree about uh, just bettering themselves, yeah. you know, knowledge wise, not just for the sake of a job. And that was really cool. And did you but, feel like in, in a true way, not just in a cliche way, like those people were able from different backgrounds were able to relate on that? Like people genuinely had this love of learning in common and that truly bridged like gaps, like boundaries. For me, it did. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so great. I feel like that's what you want out of a college. And sometimes it just doesn't play out. Um, and it's interesting you say that it's less pre-professional, less about um, what you're going to do afterwards, what you're going to do with the education radio world. I'm making air quotes. You can't do anything <laughs> with your education. Um, that's awesome. Um, so does anything happen during college that feels notable for your next decisions or what, what happens after college? What's the next big junction? So, uh, one of the most transformative moments or experiences was when I started an initiative called the community change project. And I worked with uh, South Side. So the South Side of South Side of Chicago is a an extremely under resourced area. Um, there's been tons of discussions about how there's food deserts there, and kids just aren't even getting the proper nutrition. There's no access um, to good food, and there's obviously you know a lot of um, crime, as you know people talk about. But in the process of starting my initiative, where I worked with a high school on the South side, I learned that all, you know, while those things are true and while there's crime and there's a lack of resources, there's also an incredible, um, an incredible sense of perseverance among the youth, amongst youth there. I felt like the kids that I met were trying to make the best out of a situation that, you know, was, you know, I say a situation, but really it was nothing. In many ways, they had nothing and they persevered and they wanted to go to college and they were doing their work. And I was blown away by uh, the contrast between, you know, the life that I had been grateful enough to have and kind of taken for granted my whole life. And then and then I was presented with these incredible uh, kids who were just rock stars. And that changed my, perspe my perception of uh, America, of the way that, you know, America is great in many ways especially coming from Mexico, but it also, I think, fails a ton of people every day. And we don't talk enough about about what we could do as a country to to help these young people living in, in these situations. So that was extremely formative for me. What what made you decide to do that? And I guess corollary question, like it's funny because you said the point of college uh, in the like ethos of UChicago was not to be pre-professional and not to necessarily aim toward a specific goal afterwards. But what did you think during college that you wanted to do afterwards? And was founding this program related to that? Or was it sort of something you just cared to do on the side? It was, I think it was something that I cared to do. Uh, I didn't really think about the end goal. That, it's funny that, you know, yeah. Asha was just talking about being from Miami. You don't really think about next steps. And I think that over time, that's something that I've, worked on because uh, I used to just kind of like 
fly by the seat of yeah. you know, oh, I whatever's feel like doing going this. on. Yeah. <laughs> and so I definitely just started it because I was interested in it. Uh, I loved it. I loved seeing the kids and working with them. Uh, but then, you know, I think lo- it's kind of funny how life works out. Eventually, I would kind of come back to some of the reasons as to why I started it. But at the time, it was kind of like I just I just it felt right. That's awesome. So college ends and you're like, all right, I have to do something else now. And what do you have in mind? What's the next big thing? So while I was in college, I was also very involved in a lot of different things. So I was doing this community work. And then I was also um, on student government. I was also um, in the investment club at the University of Chicago, which is like very like you rarely saw people from each of these different kind of siloed communities interact and engage. Hmm. So I feel like I was always kind of like interested in all these things. And I'm still now struggling with how to put it all together. But I I really enjoyed the challenge of finance and investment and, you know, analyzing uh, how to look at a decision to uh, invest in a company how to uh, analyze whether or not that company is going to do well. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking about what to do next. And I had two job prospects that were like the main things I was considering. I was looking at a finance job at PNC and I was also considering public sector consulting, which would have been more in line with like my community driven interests. And I had a conversation with my father who I trust very much and he's dad comes back in <laughs> junction number two dad's here again yep and he said you know my advice to you is to do to go the private sector route and then if you ever still want to go back and do public sector work you can do that and so that I think helped me make my decision to to go to PNC where I had already interned for a summer and I really mm. enjoyed the people they were really great and so I went back so that's how I ended up in finance interesting uh, do you feel like just hot take on that advice? Is it good? Is it true? Do you feel like you can? It's easier to go back in the direction you did? Yes, I do. I mean, I think it would be easy for me to sit here and say the opposite. Mm-hmm. But um, I've had I've been lucky in some ways that I found roles that I really loved and I've learned a ton from. Mm-hmm. That said, I think especially as a woman, you really have to figure out how you're going to sell your skills before you're thinking about job prospects. And you shouldn't just like what the mistake I made, I think after not, not the mistake, but something that I wish I had thought more about coming out of finance is really just taken full, a full assessment of what I could really contribute to a team and then figured out the best role. Right. And so I ended up becoming community organizer and I'm so grateful because I think being on the ground and just working on such a grassroots level is incredible and really informative. But I think, you know, when you think about the bigger implications of, is this sustainable financially? Can I make money out of this? Um, Things that, you know, I do worry about being an immigrant, right? Like my family came here for me to do well, you know, and you can find that how you will. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so looking back, I think, you know, you just, if, you have to be intentional and you have to, I, I think, take full stock of what you can bring to the table right. in a, at, a, at a nonprofit. And I think I think many nonprofits may not be used to, right? I, you rarely talk, I think, to people that come from finance or investment banking. 
a going to nonprofit. Like mm. I don't know anyone who's done that, right? Like I mean, maybe I maybe I do, and I don't know it, right? But I can't just think of someone off the top of my head. Yeah, but super. Like, how many people do you know the other direction? Either I think there's a certain level, like, of corporate, uh, like, like you've proven yourself in this one specific corporate way that you can always rely on, like. Uh, taking the job that you did right out of college sort of like it's almost like you checked a box like hey I can do this job and that probably means I can do any job like I you know it requires the most rigor the most hard hours the most sort of like um, cor- like corporate obedience almost mm-hmm. so in any other environment it's almost like a proof that you're going to do well uh, and I think it's really hard to prove that you're going to do well in that environment coming from another one. There's almost no way to prove it because you're like used to some other set of rules. That's really interesting. Uh, okay, so how do you, how did you like it? How was it? Did you enjoy it? Finance? <laughs> yeah, or- finance. I felt, <laughs> I mean, it definitely felt like I was, when, when people say like I sold my soul, you know, I, I my soul was, out for rent like it was not like I sold it because I still have it but I think I needed to leave to get it back and I think that that's something that a lot of people that work in finance may not have to struggle with as much but because I have always been interested in doing socially minded things for me it was really difficult and I couldn't live with it anymore was it this extreme feeling of isolation where you looked around and you're like does any does it bother anyone else that this is our job yeah for sure that was it doesn't it was a huge part of it. Um, and I think it, it, resentment is a good word, right? Like I was like, I mean, looking back, uh, I worked with for great people. They were so smart and I'm, I still keep in touch with them. But in the moment, it was definitely a really heart, like I, there was a disconnect entirely, you know, because I had done things that felt like more aligned with my, I want to say, it's not about values. I think it's just about, you know, I don't even think it's interest. I don't know what the like word what is. you wanted to out. be contributing to the world. Yeah, exactly. Like, like the format in which my output, you know, benefited certain entities, right? And so in finance, it was I was benefiting super rich CEOs and founders, and that was cool because I learned a lot. But I wanted to be doing something benefiting else. literally yeah. anyone else. Yeah, yeah. I think there's this crazy thing that happens in. Uh, like corporate environments too, where like there's something about having a job in an office that you can't pretend, you have to pretend you never want to do anything else. Like in order to win everyone over in your job and like keep moving up, you have to sell the act that like, this is exactly what I want to be doing. And the only job I want is my boss's job. And that's it. And if you sort of start to introduce like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we all had jobs where we were helping underprivileged people? Every, everyone, like, that's not okay. You're not allowed to say that. And so I think that uh, outward, like, environment starts to pervade your mind, your own mindset, too. So having your soul out for rent is the perfect metaphor. It's like, this, this thing that I secretly want to be doing is, like, just having to be squashed right now. Like, I can't think about that. I can't talk about it. Um did you experience that at all? Maybe I'm just tangenting no, on how I felt in the past. No, I, I did. And I remember that's when I knew when I would look at like the, 
head of the group, Liz Myers is the name of the head of the equity capital markets team at at JP Morgan. And I would just, she gave me some great advice when I was thinking about leaving. Um, And I look back and I remember sitting down with her and she was telling me about how incredible her, you know, she felt her career was and how she got to travel to Japan on one day and then, you know, jet off to a completely different part of the world and meet with business leaders that were at top of their fields. Um, and I could appreciate that, right? Like as a person who I think I, I, I can appreciate that because I have an open mind and I love learning about people in general and what kind of drives them. That's why this podcast is so cool. But I was like, but that's not me. Yeah, right? like, like, I don't want that. Yeah, I don't want that. And like maybe a tiny part of me does. I'm not trying to like, I don't even think, and that's why it was so hard to leave because it wasn't like all of me rejected it, but I think most of it did. And so that's what ended up, I think, manifesting itself in my decision to leave. That's so interesting. So what was the tipping point? When were you like, all right, actually most of me wants something else, even a part of me still wants this? Honestly, it was like, it was getting to the point where I don't know if I can, I, I never you know, saw a therapist, but I think I was pretty much depressed. Mm. And I remember calling my mom and just being like, I wake up every day and I, and I hate my life. You know, I, it was like, I just, it, I felt completely empty and I knew I had to get out. And it was something that like, at the time, my family wasn't fully supporting until I was like, this is really serious. You know, I, yeah. this is something I have to do for myself. And of course, I mean, you know, my dad had worked his butt off to make it in America. And he, you know, he's doing very well for himself. He had invested so much in my own education. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like I was selling out, you know, to that larger dream for some selfish pursuit of like helping the world, which is <laughs> that's so, so abstract. And, yeah. You know, like. Yeah. So that's that's really how it felt. But it, I just had to do it eventually. Yeah. It's really real because if people from other countries come to America because it rec- represents financial opportunity, like it doesn't represent opportunity to be happy. It doesn't represent opportunity to do whatever like makes your soul feel most fulfilled. People come here for financial opportunity. And so their families can have better financial futures. And so like the only true realization of that goal that the immigrant family has is making a lot of money. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like you're lucky as am I to have families who can like see beyond that. But I think it's really real, that immigrant mentality, right? Um, So it's funny you brought up your mom in this this particular junction. It's like when you're making a, a left or right decision, you're like, yeah, I talked to my dad. But when you wake up and you hate your life, you called your mom. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so what was like, th- that's how the tipping point happened emotionally. How did it happen logistically? How like, did you just quit out of nowhere? Did you walk in one day and say, I quit? So the first time I brought it up to, um, so it was a really small team I worked for. It was me, um, another analyst, our associate who was uh, my direct boss. And then there was also her boss, who was the head of the group. So I walked in one day and I said, I quit. I have, you know, I quit. I'm out. And he was like, what? What are you talking about? You haven't even gotten your bonus. At this point, bonuses weren't for another like four months, five months. Um, and I was like, I can't, I can't wait anymore. I just have to leave. And he said, sleep on it. And that honestly, looking back, that was like incredible advice that he gave me. And I, I'm so glad that he was able to give me, you know, 
patience and say, just go home, think about it. I think that that was really wise of him. Um, and I'm really thankful. So then I did. And I was like, okay, I can stick this out for another five months. I've done it for a year and a half. Five more months is really not a big deal. Um, and what what was great is that that allowed me to have the financial cushion ultimately to then look for my next job. Mm-hmm. So I took some time off. I planned for my wedding during that time. And so I think it was, it was very instructive and very smart for my for my boss at the time to have given me that advice. Um, and then, you know, as soon as I, I got my bonus, everybody knew, you know, that I that was I was yeah. going to leave soon. So that's so nice great. of him. Him, him it, was, yeah. It's so nice. I mean, looking <laughs> back, it's like I mean, he came to my wedding. You know, like Aww. all my team came to my wedding, and it was really incredible. And I think that's one of the things that you know, oftentimes is underestimated. I don't know how other banks work, or even other teams within J.P. Morgan, but I will always be really grateful for the way that um, they kind of gave me that space to think through my next steps, and then you know, were able to stick with me. I think that was really, really cool, especially because. I mean, I, I just don't see most corporate environments. Yeah. I'm curious because I was sort of painting a picture of a corporate environment where you're not allowed to talk about the thing you'd rather be doing, but it sounds like maybe you were. Like, could you like look over at the desk next to you and be like, you know, it'd be really great if I like had a job in the public sector and they'd be like, yeah, that sounds cool. Like, was that something that was happening? I'm trying to think back. Did your boss know that that's what you secretly harbored as a desire to do? I think so. I, it's funny. We haven't talked about this. At the time, I wanted to learn how to code. Ooh. So that's what I told him. And he was like, oh, that's really cool. You know, because he, he he had experience with clients in the tech mm-hmm. world, like media and tech. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was like, oh, that's really cool. But, you know, I started looking into it and I could not for the life of me actually like muster the attention span and like ability to teach that to myself so that didn't go anywhere but um but that's what I said I wanted to do and he was like just really think about it you know take Mm. time and so but yeah it definitely I mean the environment was open in the sense that I think people did feel like they could talk about what they wanted it was mostly just like as long as you're working hard and you are facetiming which is really a thing you know like Mm -hmm. you have to show up at nine you can't leave before nine ever um, Jeez. it's just, I mean, it's kind of the culture. I mean, you yeah. could, you know, you, you, you have a dinner, you have, but it wasn't the norm to leave early. And wow. so as long as you're like putting in those, as long as you're inputting certain level of work and, you know, presence in the office, um, then you, it, you're free to be yeah. yourself on the inside. Yeah. Kind of, <laughs> ah, kind of bleak, but yeah, just a fascinating culture. I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know how you did it. Um, so I guess that leads me to bring up that you didn't know what you were going to do when you decided to quit finance. You just took some time off and you weren't exactly sure what was next. It was maybe coding, maybe something else. I want to talk about that period, like how, what influenced you and how you landed in the place that you did. So uh, I quit and then I had, I quit around, what was it? It was like September of was it, tw- it was 2015. And so I had been planning for my wedding, which was a few, like six months later. And so that ended up taking a huge chunk of my time, I think because I quit and I had all this free time and I didn't know what to do with myself. I kind of just went like all in to planning my wedding. But at, at the time I was also thinking about 
what to do next. And I was exploring a few ideas. I had this like vague desire to um, start uh, self-defense, like workout basically for women. And that I basically, I tried every martial art. This is kind of like a funny, fun fact. Oh my gosh. I tried like every martial art. I went to like Muay Thai, Jiu Jitsu, Krav Maga. You know, I tried like everything all over Manhattan. And then, and then I was like, I don't know how I could put this into um, like an acceptable way that would also be uh, impactful. Like my sister and then I talked to my sister and she was like, well, the issue is that then you're almost validating um, you know, rape or sexual harassment because you're, but I'm like, well, I'm acknowledging though this is kind of like my argument to her because I still believe that it's an important thing, right? It's kind of like cancer. You know, someone's going to die, but does that mean that you don't, you know, try to, you know, someone has terminal cancer, do you not try to administer the most dignified way to kind of like help them with their pain, right? Like it's almost like, yeah, if in an ideal world, rape wouldn't exist, and you know right and women wouldn't have to defend themselves (laughs) against it yeah Yeah. i totally see that wrinkle it's like is the way we want to approach the reality of sexual violence by training women to forestall it like no that's not ideal but should we still train women to forestall it like maybe uh but it seems like you actually in in like thinking about how you can help people took a much more preventative approach in the end instead of the realist like well this is how the world is so we're just gonna have to work with that approach that's interesting um i've said that's interesting a bunch of times i didn't even notice (laughs) i've noticed it it is though it's all really interesting you're interesting um so that's like i can picture this as like a like a short film or something you going to all kinds of self-defense classes all over new york city in the middle of wedding planning thinking you want to teach other women how to defend themselves how did you uh so you got married that happened at some point and now you needed a new project i would imagine yeah so i got married and then um once i was like you said it was it was a big time commitment that was now gone it was amazing because wedding planning is one of the most like horrible things i've ever had to do Wow, says the person who worked nine to nine every single day for two years. It was just like drama because it was, you know, people had all these sorts of like expectations and I was trying to make sure that I didn't hurt people's feelings. And in that process, like it was, it was really hard. This is so crazy to me that you had like one of the known to be hardest jobs in the world. And now you like your current job is like the most emotionally draining job I can imagine. And you said wedding planning is the hardest thing you've ever had to do. It that was, is wild to me. It was one of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so now you had all this energy and where did you direct your attention next? So I found this really, really amazing nonprofit called Just Leadership. And they focused on uh, raising the, uh, creating a platform for folks that had been incarcerated to be able to shape policy reform and other sort of reform around criminal justice. And so really shaping the conversation around people that had been, that had experienced this, the criminal justice system as opposed to having, you know, some analysts or some legislator, which is also valuable, right? But how do you also include the conversation in the conversation that people that kind of like whose stakes are actually 
um, stand to impact from Mm -hmm. whatever change. And so I was really kind of um, pulled by that mission because to me, talking about kind of the contrast between witnessing Mexico in my childhood and the U.S. in my teenagehood and then beyond, I, I view our carceral state in the U.S. as the most visceral representation of what has gone wrong as a nation, right? Like we are incredibly quote unquote advanced in many ways. And yet racially we have created, we have designed a system to treat people really poorly and to take away people's lives, people's uh, well-being, people's families, quite literally. Um, You know, when you look at how the correction system disproportionately affects people And then you look at how, I mean, I say disproportionate because quite literally, right, like drug use is the same across races, especially like, for example, marijuana use. Mm -hmm. But um, black folks are six times more likely to um, go to jail, go to prison for that. And so to me, it's just, you know, America is so great as an immigrant, but there's also so many parts of it that I think uh, are failing. And I think it's incumbent upon us to do something about it. And that's why I joined um, the criminal justice reform movement. How, when did, when did these ideas take root for you? Was it something that you, we've talked a little bit about rabbit holes before the show. Was it something that like uh, in these months you had off, you started to do more research on, started to become more aware of, or was it something that took root earlier? I think the thread, right, that, um, first emerged came from my experience in the south side where i started uh, a project during college because i think that's when i realized that people were so under resourced you know within the same you know even within one mile of a difference right like you had hyde park this bougie neighborhood you know where obama was from before he became president and and then you walk down the street and you see dilapidated buildings, you see like such a just underwhelming sense of care for people. And so I think that that you you can't separate that from our criminal justice problem, right? Because those are the kids that are getting picked up. Those are the public health issues and all of the issues that are not being addressed. And the prison system has just become our like bandaid for all of it. Mm-hmm. And so like, that's how that connected. And then personally, my, my um, best friend, I'm actually her wedding is coming up. Her father was incarcerated for many years. And so she had to live with not having her dad around, which was incredibly, I think, um, impactful for her. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I ended up learning so much about learning how much like that probably impacted her through the course of my work, you know, over the past few years. Right. But it was, it, yeah. So it's a combination of like a few things. The personal and yeah. the, yeah. Was that link so apparent to you? back then in college was the link between the criminal justice problem in our nation and the like quality of life for kids in Chicago apparent then or do you feel like that's an idea that's more taken root since then both in your mind and in the public consciousness so I think both in my mind and in the public consciousness it is something that has evolved and thankfully has started to uh, raise right like it's been rising in terms of its profile its visibility visibility mm-hmm. and that is because i stand on the shoulders of you know thousands upon thousands of activists and of people who have actually been through this yeah shit mm-hmm. right and have spoken out and so that's something that 
you know, I, I have to acknowledge that I haven't personally been impacted. I haven't been, you know, I haven't really experienced it. And so I think it's something that our country is finally starting to reckon with. And um, I'm, I'm really grateful that the country's finally, you know, thinking People about thinking it. Thinking about it. Yeah. yeah, totally. People are reading books about this now. Yeah. Um, so Close Rikers was sort of the initiative you first threw yourself into, right? And this w- was that sort of your first professional engagement after quitting finance was yeah that like advocacy around Close Rikers and the other um, mm-hmm. initiative. How did you pick that? I guess that was sort of the thing in this area at the time, right? Like in New York. Yeah. So at the time, it was ju- the campaign was just getting started, mm-hmm. which I thought was so exciting. Yeah. So I started working on the campaign in March of 2016, and it launched like three days into when I started my job. So like my first, like my third day, basically, I was at a rally to launch the campaign at City Hall, mm-hmm. where tons of advocates and nonprofit leaders came together to declare that they would like the mayor uh, of New York City to close Rikers Island. And so that was like, really energizing and I was like I I was so happy that I decided to to, you know kind of take that route because um you know for those of you who don't know Rikers Island is uh one of the the largest jail complex in New York City it's one of the largest in the country and it's terribly uh inhumane and unconstitutional it's a place where most of the people there have not even been um charged with a crime they've been charged but they have not been convicted convicted and so they're just waiting trial awaiting trial and what that means is a lot of them can't you know afford bail and it really is you know demonstrative of a a much larger issue that is is uh impacting the whole country and so i was like this is it was it was incredible to be a part of that yeah that's such a historic new york moment that's a really awesome thing um and then from there and from there on, did you have the bug? You're like, yeah, this is absolutely what I want to be doing. And like, did you feel that way after the energy of basically seeing that campaign to successful completion? Oh, I have another question too. Did you find it hard to get a job in the public sector? Like we talked about it being easier to go one way to the other. When it came time to like put the pedal to the metal and try to get this public sector job, did you have any difficulty? So uh, I can't, my sample size is small. So mm-hmm. I interviewed at two places in the public sector. Uh-huh. I also interviewed at a startup. I didn't get, I interviewed at one startup and then one, like it wasn't quite a startup. It was more of like a medium, like a legitimate company at that point. Um, and I didn't get any of those other jobs. And I don't think, so I don't think I have enough of a sample size for the nonprofit sector, but I didn't, yeah. So I didn't get the other one. Um, but so the job you did end up getting, were they like welcoming of people from your uh, career background? They were like, this is great. We're happy to have you on board. Yeah, I think I think so. I think so. The Welcome to the light side. <laughs> my boss was a lawyer, right? And so I think he valued kind of like my the technical skills that I brought to yeah, the table yeah. and like the uh, professional kind of like profile that I brought. Cause I was able to like plan events and I was able to like do some of these more like operational and logistical things and just run with it and make decisions. And I, he felt, I think he trusted me in many ways, like mm. it, when it came to executing, whereas, you know, 
someone else may not have brought that kind of like experience yeah. to the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, I guess that brings us to now. Are there any like let's fast forward to another big career related decision. So you you basically embark on this career and has it been have you been certain about it ever since? Do you see yourself staying there? I know it's it's tricky. Like I said, we don't want to uh, denounce the things we're doing right now because they're valuable, but have there been moments where you're like, maybe this isn't for me? Yeah, there's been. So overall, I think I am ha- I'm so happy. I think I've, finan- like, profes- not financially. Financially, I, I've <laughs> never been so unhappy, but I think it's it's also relative, right? Like, even when I was at J.P. Morgan, I was like, I was even more, um, what is the word? I didn't want to spend money. I was super thrifty, thrifty. because I knew that someday I'd, I wouldn't be working there. Mm. And so now I almost like spend more money, but I'm also like really mad at myself because I don't make enough money. And so that's tricky. But in terms of like life fulfillment, I've never felt so full, like so pleased. And so that's really, really cool. Um, I love what I do. I love where I work. Like every day I wake up and I'm really excited to go there, which is something that I think most people can't say. Yeah. Which is, I mean, some you know, I think hopefully a lot of people can, but at least for me before, before this job, I had never been around so many caring people. And I think part Mm -hmm. of it is like where I work is, is a small nonprofit. It's a community-based organization. Yeah. So let's talk about the work you do now. Actually, I realize we didn't quite get to that. So after close Rikers basically won, like you did it, you got it. He agreed to close it. Like that's how that story ended. And then what happened and where did you land next? So I ended up going to work for Bronx Connect, which is a youth organization. It was founded as an alternative to incarceration. So it's for for youth that is um, would otherwise go into the prison system. Instead, they participate in our nine-month program where they get plugged in with case managers and social workers and all of these like kind of resources to then um, make it less likely that the person will reoffend or end up recidivating and back in, in prison, which is really cool. And so the reason I found this organization is because they were a partner on the Close Rikers campaign. Mm-hmm. And so I had already been working with them uh, and had you know met with them at their offices for the past year. And so when it came time to think about what was next, it was like a very natural kind of like progression. And I and I thought it would be helpful to get some experience in the social services field. So I had done advocacy with Close Rikers. And then I was like, well, what is it like to, you know, do something that's a little bit more direct services, actually working in the community in the South Bronx and seeing more like witnessing more what the what the actual gaps are in those communities. And so that was I think it's been it's been a really great experience. And one of the coolest things about Bronx Connect, not not to like um sound like I'm plugging them, but you know, it's a nonprofit. Plug away. <laughs> Is that donate they, your money to Bronx Connect, everyone yes. who's listening. Yeah. So they um are female led. They are people of color led. Um and I just think that that is like that's the only place I've worked somewhere where the executive director is a woman, the director is a woman, you know, a lot of the managers are not not to not to say men don't work there. There are plenty of men that do, but I just think it's really incredible when I think it brings a different perspective and a lot of people would like shoot me for saying that cuz 
I've, I have a lot of Twitter trolls that are constantly like, do you killing? Me. Are you a Twitter celebrity? <laughs> oh my god! No, I'm not. I have like 200 followers, so no. <laughs> and half of them are trolls. That sucks. Well, I but. think I think anyone who's listening to this podcast certainly can universally acknowledge that a woman and particularly woman of color led organization is like a worthy and beautiful thing. Um, so that's the day to day right now. Um, we talked a little bit about the idea of going back to school, about business school before the show started. And I think in the interest of like, I don't know, um, talking about routes we didn't take, I would like to go into that a little bit. Yeah. So I was telling Asha before we started recording that a few years ago, I applied to business school and I was really, really tempted to attend NYU business school. And I didn't because I felt like I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And I I didn't think it was a worthy um, investment, not even investment because I would have borrowed money. Um, I didn't, I basically didn't want to have to pay back $200,000 to attend business school. And so I think, I think it was the right choice because at the end of the day, I didn't know exactly what I wanted. I think each day I get closer to knowing what I want. I still don't know. So I, I don't know exactly what the next step will be. Uh, Cause I'm really happy right now and there's no like hurry to figure it out. But uh, yeah, I chose not to go for that reason because I, and, and I think, you know, looking back, I think it was the right call. And this is another decision where my dad played a kind of like a, a key role uh, in telling me, you know, this is a huge investment, like $200,000 that you then have to pay back. Like you have to know exactly what you want to do and you better do something that's like lucrative, right? Because if you have to pay that back, mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense to then go back yeah. and do something that's like, so, which I knew is what I wanted to do. So makes you just yeah. more beholden to the same <laughs> system. That's so, that, I was going to say that's so interesting. That's so interesting. <laughs> um, I was, I was, we're thinking about like, butterfly effects or I've been thinking lately about butterfly effects and like as part of this show's uh, mantra it's like what happened because you made this decision Uh, and when I think about your decision to not go to business school it's like you would have spent those two years doing something different than what you do right now which is literally keeping kids out of prison so like how you know what I mean like that's such a decision that had such a waterfall effect on so many people's lives, right? Do you feel that way? I'm I'm like trying to stay humble, but I also could cry right now thinking about <laughs> the kids because, I mean, I look at how certain schools are just like itching to kick kids out of school so that they don't make it to senior year, which is when graduation rates start counting, right? Hmm. So it's like kind of insane to think about the school to prison pipeline and how you know, schools, and I'm not necessarily blaming school leadership, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, where the real problem's at. Um, I think it's much larger than, you know, the principal, but they're basically like pressured to, to get underperforming kids out of the school so that it doesn't impact their graduation like rates for senior year. Yeah. And so, and so I, I, you know, I work with these kids and I'm glad that I stuck with it because relationships are so important in these kids' lives. Like if they got someone that just comes into their lives for like five months and then they're like, I'm out, you just reinforce the way that systems have been chronically failing them ad nauseum, right? And so like, right. this is what they see like day in, day out. They see the school system failing them. They see, sadly, sometimes their families failing them, even though some of them are lucky to have very supportive families. 
um, social services, like all of these things that are lacking. And so I am really, I think I'm really glad that I stayed because I have made a lot of progress, you know, with the kids that I started working with. So like the program I run is about 70 kids. And when I started last year, these kids were like, who, who is this white? I, I look white to, to them, even though I'm Mexican. And to me, I look very, I look more Mexican than my sister. So growing up, I was always like the brown sister. <laughs> and so it's funny, the kids are like, who is this white lady? You know, what is she doing here? They were, they were not giving me the time of day. And I've, you know, I understand why. And now it's been, you know, about a year and they're finally listening. And they're like, I'm really close to them. One of them has a probation, is on probation. And I, and I try to say, you know, hey, stop smoking so much. You know, things that like all teenagers do, like uh-huh. many teenagers do, but my kids that I work with get penalized to such a heavy degree and he could end up in jail, right? right? And so I'm like, have a great relationship with your probations officer and just lay low on the weed. Like mm-hmm. you don't have to quit. You just have to smoke a little less. Like you can't show up to school high all the time. Um, and he's like, okay, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm trying. And he just got awarded at school for like t- attendance. Like he's actually going more. Wow. And so it's been like, I mean, I don't know if I have anything to do with it, but it's like, it's just amazing to see that, you know, they trust me more. They're yeah. like, oh, she, ha- she actually cares. Yeah. In the caring professions, like persistence, just showing up, you know, one year after another and being a constant presence pays off. That's fascinating. You're doing really awesome work. Like it's it's really exciting and inspirational to hear about it. Um, I wanted to ask one more question. This is a I don't I don't talk to married folks that much. I feel like most of the people I talk to are like Peter Pan syndrome New Yorkers who are going to be single forever. And so the fact that you have a husband in your life makes me wonder. At what point do you know you want to get married? How does the decision to get married start to feel certain or final? It's a really good question. It's like one of the best questions you've asked because it's really tough. Uh, I think, so uh, I first started my relationship with my now husband as friends. Like we were fully friends. Like Mm -hmm. I was dating someone else at the time. He was dating someone else at the time. Um, So it was like entirely 100% friend zone. And then over time, like we each eventually broke up with our um, respective exes. And then it was it was really complicated at first because he moved to New York and I was in Chicago. But from the moment that like I started to have romantic feelings about him, I kind of just knew. And it's really weird because people it sounds so cliche, but I had never felt like, you know, this is this is it. Like, I want to marry this guy. And I couldn't really, it's not something describable. It's not something that you could, you know, it's not tangible in any way. I just kind of, I knew I wanted to be with him. There was something about his energy, you know, where I just wanted to be around him all the time. And so that's amazing. And you kind of just knew. It sounds like that, like we, I, in my intro talk about instinct versus like making your lists. And it sounds like a lot of the decisions in your life have been more ones you had to think out logically. Like you had to call someone, you had to like weigh pros and cons and like think it through. And this one sounds very intuitive. Yeah, for sure. You haven't talked about energy yet until right now. Uh, Cool. I'm sorry. I feel weird ending this on a note of romance, but love is important and life is short. Um, Amazing work that you're doing. I'm like really just, I'm feeling inspired by your entire story. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Asha. It's been great. It was really fun. 
uh, in the way of ending credits. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, we're on Radio Free Brooklyn, which is a nonprofit community radio station supported by listeners. So go to the website, give us your money if you're so inclined. Uh, theme song is by Nation of Language. Check them out wherever you get your music or on tour in a, a cool venue near you. And if you're interested in the show, you have a cool life path you want to share on it, or you just have a question for me, you can email me at asha at radiofreebrooklyn.com. Uh, no, it's .org, asha at radiofreebrooklyn.org, or find the show on Facebook, Bushwick Junction on Radio Free Brooklyn. That's all. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.